Tianakwe. My name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, we speak to Danielle Duffield, co-founder of the New Zealand Animal Law Association, about New Zealand's animal welfare laws. Greyhound racing has restarted under Alert Level 3, and fast food faces unprecedented demand at drive-thrus. But do people really know what's in their bucket of KFC? And hunters are bored in lockdown, but it hasn't made animals any safer. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. We're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We'll go beyond the news cycle and dive into some of the complexities that surrounds the exploitation of animals. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Pledges start at $5 a month. Patrons can unlock bonus content as well as have a say in the future of the show and what we might discuss. You'll also get warm fuzzy feelings knowing that you're supporting us to make great content for you. The COVID-19 lockdown has required all of us to make great sacrifices to ensure the health and well-being of our nation. Businesses and schools closed, and even during Alert Level 3, many of us continue to work from home. Our essential workers have made even greater sacrifices by putting their health and the health of their families at risk to ensure essential services remain in operation. I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those people. Our healthcare and emergency workers, supermarket workers, courier and distribution workers, the list is endless. Without those essential workers, many of whom are on just above minimum wage, the rest of us wouldn't be able to remain in our homes in isolation. The lockdown has meant a lot of us have had to be a bit creative with how we fill our spare time at home. I'm using Zoom outside of work just as much as during work hours to keep in contact with friends and family. My social media feeds have been filled with live streams and even homemade music videos. My cat doesn't appear to be sick of me yet, but his patience has definitely been tested. You're just so cute and fluffy, Felix. I can't help but want to pick you up. A few weeks ago, we learnt of a new Facebook group that had emerged for hunters to share content about how they're spending their time. Of course, hunting is a breach of the current lockdown rules, so no doubt they have some spare time up their sleeve. The group is called the Great New Zealand Lockup Mouse Hunt Competition. The group started in late March, and would-be hunters have used the group to brag about the mice and rats they've killed while in isolation by posting graphic images of their victims. Brooke is a keen hunter and is missing out on shooting deer this year. So he decided to set up a Facebook page inviting people to set traps around their properties for pesky mice. It's called the Great NZ Lockup Mouse Hunt Comp. In just a few days, more than 18,000 people have joined the page and interest has stretched all over the world, including in Australia, Britain and America. Sam says he's surprised by the interest. The whole idea of it was to catch a few mice in mice traps and, yeah, measure them like the same way you would measure a trophy stag if you um, shot one of those. And, yeah, it was all just for a laugh. That was the main thing, was just to have a bit of a laugh without not being able to hunt, and everyone was a bit down. So 
last were needed. He says people are posting photos and videos of their catches on the Facebook page. With time on their hands, many are staging elaborate scenes with their catches. One image sees Barbie in her pink soft-top car, her roadkill across the boot, pulled over by the police, a naked Ken doll standing in as officer. Another sees a toy soldier carrying a mouse on his back through the bush. Well, grass. The beast so big it can barely fit in the back of the toy Land Rover. And so long its nose touches the steps on the porch of the toy house. A red-capped Lego character is also seen with his cat on his back, his yellow hands clutching the feet, the tail stretching back from his head. Others see remote-controlled choppers come to the rescue, tugging up the little mouse bodies as high as their motors can. And a rocky puddle's the scene of our next mouse tail. A little green digger, mouse in its grabber, drives across the banks of the puddle, two deer and a mountain goat gazing on. Yeah, it works quite well. So, don your camo, smear that peanut butter on the trap and get your toys at the ready. The great NZ lock-up mouse hunt is well and truly on. The Radio New Zealand piece that broke the news of this group wasn't all that balanced. They'd framed the story as a fun Facebook group for hunters to have a laugh during lockdown. But let's call it what it really is. Bored hunters are turning to not just killing rats and mice but displaying their bodies in various ways for amusement. This is ignoring the fact that rats and mice are conscious animals. Even our laws recognises this fact. To treat them as inanimate objects, just because they are considered an unwanted species, is to forget that they still deserve consideration as highly sentient beings. Whatever reason someone may have for killing an animal, making a spectacle of that animal's body for entertainment perpetuates the notion that it's fun to kill and okay to laugh when an animal has lost their life. Since Radio New Zealand broke this story, it appears that other animals, not just mice and rats, have fallen victim to the hunters within this group. Last week, a member of the Facebook group posted an image of a dead cat they had caught in what's called a Tim's trap. I won't go into details of how a Tim's trap works, Under this photo, another member had posted a comment gloating about the number of cats Dad killed since January, which included 25 kittens. Unfortunately, it's legal to kill feral cats on private property in New Zealand. The condition of the cat in the image, though, suggested it possibly wasn't feral. Its glossy fur looked in good condition. It is difficult to substantiate that, though, so we can only hope that that cat wasn't someone's companion. The kittens, on the other hand, they should have been handed into the SPCA or a local rescue shelter. Safe understands the killing of these kittens is now under investigation. Whoever that was must be prosecuted. There is never any justifiable reason to kill kittens when they can go to a rescue shelter. Let's take a step back from the individual examples of cruelty that's occurred here. This group has become a platform to glorify and encourage animal cruelty. It's become a space for people to gain praise for killing, displaying and mocking dead animals and it should be shut down. All animals should be treated with dignity and respect, regardless of whether they're a companion animal, a protected species or an animal considered a pest. With lockdown restrictions beginning to ease, it's allowed certain parts of the economy to open up which last week meant that greyhound racing could resume in New Zealand. Last Tuesday, races were held in Christchurch and Whanganui for the first time. 
The greyhound racing industry in New Zealand has been implicated in some appalling animal welfare outcomes in recent times. An independent review conducted by former High Court judge Rodney Hanson QC was published in 2017, which revealed the industry had euthanized 1,447 greyhounds over a four-year period. Further to that, 1,271 greyhounds were unaccounted for. Following the report's publication, the industry body Greyhound Racing New Zealand said they would work towards implementing most, if not all, of the report's recommendations. They publish quarterly updates on their website, but it's fair to say their progress has been slow. It almost seems like they're dragging out the process. But let's consider the outcomes. The Hansen report said the industry killed 1,400 dogs over a four-year period an average of 361 a year. In Greyhound Racing New Zealand's 2019 annual report, they reported that 293 greyhounds had been euthanised due to the industry's failure to rehome them. A further 54 were euthanised at the track due to critical injuries sustained during racing. That's 347 dogs. The greyhound racing industry killed almost a dog a day in 2019. In 2018, they reported 353 had been euthanized. So, on average, the industry has barely made a difference to the number of dogs they're killing every year, despite a damning report in 2017 illustrating that they have to improve welfare outcomes for greyhounds. Even Winston Peters slammed the industry over it. And Winston loves racing. I think it's clear that the greyhound racing industry has a problem on their hands that they can't solve. They've said numerous times that they've tried everything they can, yet they still put down hundreds of dogs a year. This has been the problem all along, and after many years of reform, they still can't get their breeding down to a level where they can stop killing unwanted greyhounds. The industry is literally betting on these dogs' lives, solely for gambling profits and entertainment. New Zealand is one of eight countries where it's still legal to race greyhounds. Legislation to ban greyhound racing was passed in 2018 in the Australian Capital Territory and Florida, USA. We ought to be adding New Zealand to that list. In the last episode where I interviewed Dr Nick Taylor, you may remember us commenting on the meme that was circulating Facebook. Alert level 3 is alert level 4, but with KFC. Well... The week before last, we went into level 3, and guess who had hundreds of cars queued down the road? Some regions had to implement traffic management plans to handle the increased demand. Some KFC stores ran out of chicken. Clearly, fast food has gone from a normalised part of people's lives to a luxury during alert level 4. And I'll admit, I'm not completely innocent here. No, I did not get KFC. I did, however, order one of my favourite vegan Hell's pizzas on the first day of Alert Level 3. Side note, it was a bit of an anticlimax. It wasn't bad, it just sort of... was. Afterwards I just thought, oh yeah, that's kind of just it, isn't it? Anyway, while others were chowing down on their buckets of fried chicken, I can bet they weren't thinking about where that chicken came from, or how it was raised. Chickens bred for meat in New Zealand double in size every week. Many people incorrectly assert that they're fed growth hormones. 
They're actually fed antibiotics with their feed, but that's to fight off infections which are common in the sheds they're raised in with 40,000 other chickens. They're forced to stand on their own excrement, which isn't cleaned out until after the birds have been slaughtered. The use of antibiotics does have some effect on the growth of these chickens, but it's not their primary use. Growth hormones aren't used at all for chickens bred for meat in New Zealand. The reason they grow so quickly is due to their genetics. The breeds of chickens used to produce meat have been selectively bred over decades to grow at an extraordinary rate. Since they grow so fast, their bones, muscles and organs can't keep up. Between 6 and 10,000 birds die every day in sheds across the country, mostly from heart failure, or they're removed and killed because they've become so lame. They're sent to slaughter at 6 weeks of age. They're still babies. They have blue eyes like babies. They even still cheap like babies. But due to their genetics, they've reached their slaughter size at six weeks and are ready to be sent to the slaughterhouse. Many chickens who are raised for meat who are rescued from these sheds don't make it past the six-month mark due to the health complications that come from their genetic makeup. This is the chicken that makes it into the bucket of KFC. But it's also the same chicken that makes it onto supermarket shelves. It's the same chicken that's sold as free range. Even chicken meat producers who allegedly have higher standards of animal welfare use the same breeds of fast-growing chickens. All chickens bred for meat in New Zealand are of these fast-growing breeds, so they all suffer from the same health complications. Today on the show, we're joined by Danielle Duffield. Danielle is an expert in animal law and currently based in the UK. She's previously taught animal law at Auckland University of Technology and the University of Otago and is co-founder of the New Zealand Animal Law Association. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Will. It's nice to be here. No, thank you for joining me. Just to kick things off, could you give us a bit of an overview of New Zealand's animal law framework and how those all those areas play out? Sure. So there's kind of three layers to legislation in New Zealand in terms of animal welfare. We have at a high level an Animal Welfare Act, so that's the key piece of legislation, and it sets out certain offences, um, so some relate to the conduct towards animals so for example you can't beat a dog that you find on the street Um, and you know if your neighbor's cat comes over to your property you can't cause harm to it right and then there's also obligations that this legislation sets upon uh, animals that you have in your care so animals that you're in charge of whether you're the owner or not so these are obligations to meet the physical health and behavioral needs of animals um, and to basically ensure that the animals in your care are well looked after And then we have codes of welfare, which govern the treatment of animals in certain industries and certain types of animals. So we have a code for slaughter, for example, a code for meat chickens, a code for rodeo and um, various other uses of um, animals. And then we also have uh, specific regulations. So uh, this is a fairly new development in the legal landscape in New Zealand. Um, But basically certain standards from codes of welfare can be directly enforced um, in this way through these regulations with an instant fine or, or with a prosecution. Um, and then we also have an enforcement regime where the Ministry for Primary Industries as a government department enforces farmed animal welfare 
and the SBTA enforces companion animal welfare. So that's at a high level um, how the legal landscape looks like for animals in New Zealand. Right. So you say there's regulations that are new to the legal landscape, but the, the codes of welfare aren't normally legally enforceable? No. So these codes, uh, they set out standards that are binding law in theory, um, but you can't just go to court and say, this person breached minimum standard 18 of the pig code of welfare, right? You need to instead say this person ill-treated animals under uh, an offence under the Animal Welfare Act, you need to rely on the principal piece of legislation. And you might refer to the fact that a standard from a code was breached and that will be rebuttable evidence um, of an offence, but you can't rely on that breach of a code in itself. So the government decided to promulgate these new regulations to essentially solve that problem and to ensure um, that at least certain standards could be directly enforced. But of course, you know, it's only a very small number of standards from codes which made their way into regulations. So most standards governing animal use in New Zealand are not directly enforceable. So um, a lot of commentators say that New Zealand has one of the best pieces of animal welfare legislation in the world, namely the Animal Welfare Act 1999. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you agree with that statement? I don't think we're the best in the world. I think you hear that a lot from the Ministry for Primary Industries. I think when you look at countries like Switzerland and Austria, it's quite clear that they do actually just have better standards. For example, uh, in Swiss law, they acknowledge animal dignity, which is quite progressive and not something that our legislation does. They've also banned farrowing crates, which are you know, a form of intensive confinement for pigs, uh, which the New Zealand government hasn't done. Um, and you could point to various examples like this. Um, so I don't think we're the best in the world. And I actually think if you look at the most recent World Animal Protection uh, Index, which ranks different countries around the world, um, they came out a couple of months ago and New Zealand's ranking dropped from an A, uh, which was granted in 2014, to a C. So I don't think New Zealand can legitimately claim to be the best in the world. Having said that, I do think compared with most countries, it's good. Like if you just look at the legislation, it is better than the majority of countries um, and progressive in certain respects. Right. So the one of the parts of the Animal Welfare Act that is normally considered quite good is the fact that it recognises sentience. But you mentioned, I think it was Switzerland, that um, says there's an obligation to animals to have dignity. So is that quite a bit of a step further, do you, do you think? Yeah, I think it's quite a step further from sentience. I think, firstly... It's not clear in New Zealand uh, what impact that sentience amendment has had. So it's only since 2015 uh, that our legislation has acknowledged that animals are sentient. Um, but it wasn't that change wasn't linked with any changes in standards. So it's not like we suddenly banned colony cages for hens because we recognise that animals were sentient, um, or we suddenly, you know, improved the enforcement regime we have for. Um, animals by funding enforcement better because we've acknowledged animals are sentient like it hasn't been linked to any tangible changes so I think I especially think uh, with non-lawyers you hear people talking about it a lot but when you actually look at the legal impact I don't think it's been particularly significant Um, and I think the dignity concept is really interesting is unusual Um, and yeah it it does seem that there are certain things that might be an offense to animal dignity even if it might not be an animal welfare offence might not cause pain or suffering, but it might cause embarrassment, for example. It might be degrading to the animal. So, um, you know, when you drive 
in the countryside in New Zealand and you see sheep painted in certain colours unnecessarily, that might be an offence. I don't know because I'm not a Swiss lawyer, but from what I've read, it might be an offence to animal dignity in Switzerland. And obviously, um, you know, it's probably not an offence here. So I think it's a, it's a whole other category. Um, but I think more importantly, when you actually look at actual standards, like for example, farrowing crates, you see that it's not as if New Zealand law is just ahead of everywhere else. Actually, it tries to keep up with EU standards. In some respects, it might be better than um, EU standards. In some respects, it might be worse. Um, it's generally good internationally, but it's certainly not elite, not the leader. I suppose as well, you, you, you can't just look at that single piece of legislation, the Animal Welfare Act, in, in isolation either. Um, there's the codes of welfare and the regulations as well that, that come into play, which make, would I be correct in saying, that, that, that makes up the overall legal framework. So you can look at pieces of the legislation and go, okay, that's quite good, but um, you can't look at it in isolation, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think people might say, for example, New Zealand also has a very wide definition of animal in our animal welfare act. So, for example, crustaceans are included and fish are included. And if you compare that to a lot of countries, that's extremely progressive. Um, and, for example, a lot of um, US states and under US federal law, chickens are just excluded entirely. So they're excluded from protections for humane slaughter and humane transport. So they actually have these protections apply to all animals, including fish and crustaceans. On the face of it, it looks very progressive. The same could be said with, um, you know, sentience. The same could be a set of our restrictions of, on, like, testing of great apes. Um, and they're all very high-level points. But when you look at the detail, I think that's what really matters, and I think that's the point you're making. You need to go and look at, well... Um, you know, what space do we give to hens in cages or meat chickens in barns? Um, you know, do we permit rodeos? We need to look at all these actual standards contained in codes and contained in regulations. And we also need to look at how they're enforced. So is the government actually funding enforcement? Um, and it's only that kind of holistic picture which will tell you how New Zealand really compares to other countries. So what are the problems with our current animal welfare laws and regulations and enforcement at the moment? Yeah, I think there are a lot. Um, I think the, the big theme is that things look good on paper, but when you actually go into the detail, things don't always look quite so good. Um, I think a key example of this is the requirement that animals be able to express normal patterns of behaviour. Um, you know, that's a requirement under our Animal Welfare Act. And yet there are numerous examples, I think, of practices that are permitted in codes of welfare that don't allow those animals to express normal patterns of behaviour. So, for example, you know, we still have hens in battery cages right now, although they will be phased out in a couple of years. Um, they'll be replaced with colony cages, which are slightly bigger cages with certain enrichments, but the animals still aren't outdoors. They still aren't able to move around properly. Um, I think it's quite clear that hens and colony cages cannot express normal patterns of behaviour. Um, the same could be said of farrowing crates for pigs, where pigs cannot turn around. Um, and, you know, if we're going to say <laughs> these animals can express normal patterns of behaviour, then we need to ensure that the standards and codes of welfare are actually consistent with that. But we see often that just isn't the case. So I think that is a significant problem. Um, I think also we have very poor protections for the most numerous animals. So people think of sheep when they think of New Zealand. They think, you know, it's a country of tons of sheep. But actually we're a country of a lot of broiler chickens, a lot of meat chickens. So 
you know, most farmed animals in New Zealand are meat chickens. We have 120 million of them um, and they live in very, very poor conditions, I think. Um, and we've also seen very little attention to their welfare. So I think the first broiler code of welfare was published in 2003 um, and all the problems that were identified at the time with it by um, animal law scholars, those problems still exist today. 17 years later, we still have problems with very high stocking density, um, something like 19 birds per square, square meter uh, being permitted. We still have problems with the breeds that are used. So we have uh, chickens that are basically uh, made to grow so quickly genetically uh, that they're always going to, they're not going to be able to walk around properly, they're going to suffer from incredible lameness, basically be in pain their whole life, regardless of what environment they're in, just because um, of the way their bodies work, they grow too quickly and their legs can't support their bodies um, and lameness is a huge problem. So I think, you know, when you look at this animal that is the most numerous land animal and yet we have very, very poor protections for it. Um, and I think you can make a similar point with fish. Obviously, a lot of fish are farmed in New Zealand and a lot of a lot are caught in the wild as well, um, but we don't have a fish code of welfare. Um, and so there's almost no oversight of fish welfare, despite the fact that they are covered by the Animal Welfare Act. So when we look at these animals that comprise most farm animals and indeed most animals in New Zealand, uh, meat, chickens and fish, we see, uh, very, I think, either very poor standards or non-existent standards. Um, I think that's the real problem. A lot of problems with enforcement, um, with the SPCA being expected to enforce companion animal welfare and very poor funding for the MPI's enforcement of farmed animal welfare. Uh, we have rodeos, we have live export where, you know, we send a lot of animals to China and I know you spoke about that in a recent podcast. Um, so I think we have certainly have a lot of problems despite the fact that our law looks quite good on paper. A lot of those things that you've mentioned, and I'll take radio for example, the codes of welfare, from my perspective anyway, they almost seem like they kind of operate as a little bit of a loophole, so to speak, in the sense that the codes of welfare allow things to occur that's under the Animal Welfare Act would be illegal, but because the code of welfare allows for it, it kind of operates as a bit of a loophole. Um, for people to you know do things that they do to um, animals in rodeo um, and, and likely in, in broiler farms as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think it was quite telling and I think it was about 2015 and people made an official information act request to the Ministry for Primary Industries um, on rodeo and one MPI official had made the comment that codes of welfare were not acting as a sword to enforce the act but actually as a shield and this is certainly true of rodeo, I think, because when you look at footage, um, you know, I, I play footage from New Zealand rodeos to my students and they're often just really shocked at what actually goes on. And most of these students have never been to a rodeo. Um, and I think it's just, it's very concerning that we say, you know, we need to handle animals in ways that minimizes pain and distress. Um, and yet we permit practices that are clearly not necessary. Um, this is entertainment. Uh, these are practices that were banned in the UK in the 1930s. Um, we don't really have any legal basis for these practices, but we have a code um, that permits these practices. So I think rodeo is a very good example, but there are numerous other examples that we could point to. So you, you co-founded the New Zealand Animal Law Association, which has since taken on 
a private prosecution and is now litigating the government was safe over the continued use of firing crates in New Zealand. In the beginning, what was the rationale behind establishing the NZALA? I think I saw that there was a clear gap in animal advocacy in New Zealand uh, in terms of legal skills and legal advocacy and um, just making sure that the law was operating um, as it is supposed to. I'd been interested in animal welfare since I was a teenager uh, and in law school I read about these animal law groups um, at law schools in the US and in Canada, um, these animal law chapters um, that would you know, advocate for animal law courses and help out animal law uh, groups with research and host events on campus about animal law um, and I thought that sounded like a great idea so I set up a chapter at Otago University where I was studying um, and we just raised the profile of animal law and organized events and uh, wrote submissions on law reform and things like that um, and lobbied for an animal law course and it was always really clear to me even at that point that you know, it wasn't just student advocacy that was lacking. It was the fact that at the time there was no, you know, national group of lawyers um, doing this sort of work. We didn't have lawyers bringing court cases or, you know, doing law reform work or helping animal um, advocacy organisations, for example. Um, and so in 2014, I was, that was the year I got admitted to the bar in New Zealand. And so I organised a workshop for lawyers um, interested in animal welfare um, and we had various presentations and then at the end I organised a session basically trying to find out whether there was interest among other lawyers to set up an organisation um, and then we, so we, I found other lawyers and I, we put out advertisements uh, in like legal gazettes. Um, I thought we'd get, you know, one or two lawyers who happened to be interested in this weird animal cause and then got hundreds of lawyers signing up. So I was very taken back and pleasantly surprised at how much interest there was. Um, but yeah, it was really clear that, you know, this was something that we could do and we could have a really tangible impact because no one else was doing this work. It was very neglected, but also very important, I thought. Um, so it was really about not just bringing court cases, but also about um, putting a legal mind and using our legal training to these issues, um, supporting groups that don't have that, you know, legal training and skills. Um, and really just making sure that the law operates as it should be, you know, uh, making sure that if a protection is provided for in the Act, then, you know, in accordance with the principles of the rule of law, that the codes comply with those principles. Um, so it was really about the technocratic side to it as well. Going back a little bit to the enforcement of, of the Animal Welfare Act, and you've mentioned this, that it largely falls to MPI and the SPCA. MPI enforce the Act for farm animals and SPCA for, for companion animals. Now, it's, it's widely um, considered that the MPI certainly have a conflict of interest. Their, their main role is to to promote the, the interests of the agriculture industry. There's a lot of friction between that and animal welfare because that's just considered extra cost for farmers. And in SBCA, they're a private charity. As you said, they're reliant on donations and, and limited resources and have to uh, look after rescue animals as well, which they do an amazing job at. But <laughs> it's a big undertaking for a, a private charity. A lot of commentators view this um, this enforcement sort of regime between these two entities as problematic. What kind of reform do you think is required in this area? Yeah, I agree with all of your observations. I think... It's really inappropriate that we rely on the SBCA to enforce companion animal welfare. Um, you know, we've said that animal welfare 
um, offending is a really serious crime. People can go to jail for five years for the worst animal welfare offences, and yet we don't provide proper state funding for it. It's very unusual. There's no other example of a charity being um, charged with enforcing the criminal law in New Zealand. Um, I've always said it's kind of like expecting women's refuge to enforce sexual violence offending without providing any funding or support. Obviously, people would find that highly unacceptable, and we should also find it unacceptable that we expect the SPCA to enforce animal welfare um, offending. It's, it's not just the practical problems with funding, as you say, and them having all this other work to do and being stretched, uh, but it's also just uh, the principle behind it as well. The fact that, you know, a government, we should have these independent prosecutors, they should be properly resourced. Um, and really it's just an archaic regime that needs to change. Um, but as, at the same time, we see these problems with the Ministry for Primary Industries. A lot of uh, concern has been expressed that, you know, they're not as willing to prosecute always as they, as they could be uh, with some undercover investigations. Um, and there is this concern by a lot of people that, you know, their principal responsibility is to promote New Zealand's export industry to the world. Um, rather than to protect animal welfare and, you know, under 2% of their budget, as I understand it, goes to animal welfare. So it's really just not their focus and there is this conflict of interest. Um, I've given an exam question to students on this in the past whether, you know, the SBCA um, enforcement role should be moved to the MPI and, you know, no one thought it was a good idea. I don't think I had a single student willing to say the SBCA's portfolio should go to the MPI, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so in my view, what I think needs to happen is firstly, we need the SBCA to focus on other things and not enforcement, not because they do a bad job of it, just but because they shouldn't be expected to do that. And we see that in Ontario and Canada, uh, there was a legal challenge to this similar arrangement. And as I understand it, ultimately the Ontario SBCA agreed that, that they shouldn't be the people doing this and they agreed to um, step down and now they have a new state regime. Um, we have a similar example in uh, New York where uh, the American SBCA used to uh, do enforcement in New York State. Um, and now they just provide sort of support um, and assistance um, in terms of like their skills and, you know, using what they've built up over the years to help like the police department with that. Um, so I think we have seen some interesting cases overseas of some changes. And I think what we really need is, uh, yeah, a properly funded state body that isn't within the MPI, but is within an independent agency um, and it is just properly funded, properly resourced. Um, because I think, you know, when we look at animal welfare problems in New Zealand, you know, resourcing goes to the heart of this. It's not just um, the problem with MPI and SPCA. You could say the same thing about the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee, which produces codes of welfare. It's very poorly resourced. We want you know, full-time members on that as well. So I think resourcing could solve a lot of problems, just actually uh, putting the money and resources that this cause deserves and that I think New Zealanders expect. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's um, there's few things that, that disappoint people or infuriate people more than, than animal cruelty. And is it common for SBCAs or, you know, even further to that, animal charities around the world to, to play that sort of enforcement role for companion animals? It's common for SBCAs. Um, it's basically something we inherited through our Commonwealth history. So it started in England um, as I understand it, before there was a police force in London, the SBCA just took it on themselves to enforce um, 
the animal welfare legislation that had been recently been enacted. Um, and so, of course, that model came to New Zealand, it came to Australia, and it came to Canada. Um, and to a lesser extent, you know, certain US states, the um, American SBCA did some enforcement, but mostly it's a Commonwealth problem. And we see similar problems in Australia and Canada and the UK um, in terms of just, you know, when you rely on a charity to enforce the law, it's, it's probably not going to be able to be done as well as it should be. Um, so it is a very quite quirky arrangement and really just something that arose out of historical circumstances that no longer exist. Um, and yeah, I think most New Zealanders probably don't even realise that. They might think, okay, well, you call the SBCA about this, but they haven't properly thought about the fact that, and probably don't know that, for example, the government provides almost no funding for their enforcement role, um, that it's people's donations that um, mean there is enforcement at all. Um, so I think there's probably not a lot of awareness, but I think that would be something that, you know, I'd really like to see change. And, and with MPI as well, like we just need proper enforcement, proper funding. Um, if the protections that look really good, when you look at the Animal Welfare Act 1999, if they're actually to have any meaning in terms of the animals' lives on the ground. And, and how about the the codes of welfare? I mean, we've spoken a little bit about how they, they kind of do operate as a little bit of a loophole for certain practices to be allowed to continue, which on their own under you know the Act um, shouldn't be legal. What kind of changes do you think need to happen there? I think the problem with uh, codes is that they are technically supposed to be consistent with the act like that is a legal requirement um, but what happens if a code is promulgated as many have been which contains standards that don't appear to be um, consistent with the act what happens is what you need is a legal challenge right and there have been very few of these because you know there haven't been organizations in New Zealand with the resources to bring a legal challenge they're very expensive and uh, time consuming. So um, I think one thing that would be really useful would be to have an independent agency uh, that actually monitored and reviewed, you know, NAWIC and MPI's performance and actually check that these codes that have been promulgated are consistent with the requirements of the animal welfare. Because at the moment, um, you know, there's no one, not really enough money or resources to bring constantly bring legal challenges. Um, and so what you really need is some more structural reforms, I think, uh, that will ensure someone's actually looking critically at the standards that have been put in those codes and how consistent they are um, with the animal welfare. Because it's not just enough to just have a requirement as we do, that they be consistent. In theory, you need, you know, agencies actively reviewing that. Um, and I think having a properly funded independent body like that would be really useful. I know there has been a lot of uh, advocacy for these sorts of independent agencies, including by SAFE, um, and I think that would help with a lot of these problems and certainly the problems uh, with codes. We also, there's a whole other layer with uh, regulation as well, um, with the new regulations, um, but I think fundamentally uh, the problem lies with the codes and if we had an independent agency kind of tracking what was going on and ensuring these the proper processes were being taken place and the requirements were being met, I think that would be really valuable. You've been listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe the Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters wherever your favourite platform is. 
If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, ka kite anō.